Watcher, I'm Toby Haydock, and I hope that you were the listener all the time. Doctor Who fans have many reasons to be grateful to Lisa Bowerman. And here's another, as she has scoured her address book and has put me in touch with all sorts of folk, including my next victim. I hope he doesn't try to smash the machinery onto which this podcast is recorded, otherwise we'll have a minor problem. I'm in the Globe, not the theatre, the pub, but why not? And I'm with a gentleman who's much cleaner than Doctor Who fans would know him to be, uh, because he was a minor, so I'm going to ask him um, who he is and why on earth I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Yeah, great. Um, my name's Willie Milkley, um, actor, of course. Um, yes, I was a minor, but that doesn't also mean that I w- I'm under 18. I'm actually uh, an adult, <laughs> so I'm a major minor. Um, so uh, I had the pleasure of appearing in Doctor Who when uh, Colin Baker was the Doctor that period back in the 80s 84 85 um and we did a two-part story called the mark of the rani i think colin actually did six stories from memory and in those days uh when colin was the doctor um the stories were shown in two parts two 45 minute episodes so in effect you're creating a 90 minute film which is broadcast on the Saturday night in two 45-minute blocks. Um, so I had the pleasure of shooting the two parts of uh, The Mark of the Rani, w- uh, playing the character of Tim Bass. Um, one of the... F- well, one of the few in those days, uh, Doctor Who stories, where um, everybody was from Earth. Um, so we were all humans. Uh, there were no monsters as such. We I mean, had the Daleks and stuff, but, but none of the characters. So we, everybody saw our faces. We weren't kind of one of those actors who said, I was in Doctor Who, but you'd never recognise me because I had a green plastic mask on or I was hidden in a tree and started to walk around or something. So, um, yeah, we were all humans. It was the time of the Industrial Revolution as the setting, and the Luddites uh, revolting against the introduction of machinery and uh, all these coal miners working at the coal face in the northeast of England, uh, which wasn't the northeast of England because we actually filmed everything down at Ironbridge in Shropshire at the Mining Museum. Um, so we pieced all, all that story together, um, both um, at BBC Wood Lane Studios, North Acton Rehearsal Rooms and Ironbridge Mining Museum over a period of about three weeks. Well, and it's beautiful. I mean, the other thing that's very interesting about it from Doctor Who at that time is that there's a lot outside and a lot on film. Yep. And is it not better as an actor uh, to get a job that involves a bit of time on location? Absolutely wonderful, because you're away from home, uh, you're away with the team, with the company, um, and you can get to know actors um, a lot more when you're actually living in a hotel and you're spending a couple of weeks away um, because you're socialising together and spending a bit more time with them. And actually, I mean, you look back to the days... I, I was actually... Interestingly, I mean, this morning I've been at the BBC studios in Wood Lane, and there is absolutely no similarity now to the BBC and the way the BBC is run now in 2013 as it was in the 70s, 80s, and even into the early 90s. Um, Number one, you would come together as a company on a show, even Doctor Who, a long-running show, and you would meet for a read-through. 
in the North Acton rehearsal rooms at the BBC. Um, you, that's the first time you'd meet your company. You'd go for costume fittings together. You would meet all your uh, designers and you'd be uh, shown designs about your costumes and what you were going to wear and how you are going to look, how the story was going to be told, what it would actually look like. So by the time you actually went away, and we did, we did it the other way around, so we went to Ironbridge first and did all the location work first, before we came to studio um, but we had a really clear picture in the mind I mean you kind of felt that you knew your team that you were working with uh, by the time we actually got to the location to then spend 10 11 days on location living together working together but then having dinner together and socializing together as well it was fantastic because you get to know each other it's like, it's like for actors doing a play where you're spending that much time normally in television particularly now you don't meet anybody you meet people on set you get the job, you're sent a script, you, you may have a costume fitting on your own, you turn up, and that's, you, how do you do? This is Do Grey Scott, nice to meet you, Do Grey. Oh, right, we're going to shoot these scenes now, are we? And that's it, and then it's bye-bye, and uh, I'll see you either in a couple of days or the next time we shoot, you know. Now, we actors, we miss out when, uh, in the modern way of making television. Do the audience miss out on something as well, or is it just us missing out on conviviality <laughs> and an easier working environment? I think you're absolutely... You're probably bang on, uh, bang on with that, actually. Um, yeah, it's probably more about the actors and the experience for us of, of, of uh, enjoying the job and the, and, and the, the kind of sense of fulfilment, I think, from the job. It can be a little bit dissatisfying because, you know, it's interesting as, as an actor, what, what's very interesting, an actor in film and television, um, when, when people ask you um, whether you prefer working in the theatre or, the, or television or ask you the difference between those two mediums of work, the way that I kind of talk about it is that in television and film, you have no control whatsoever over the work that you produce. So you can produce what you think is your best work on a take, on a particular shot, but you have no say or control in whether that particular item of work that you have recorded is going to be used in the final product. Um, so that's in the hands of the producers and the directors, and they are the ones that carry, carry all the power. So actually, in terms of what the audience see now, that hasn't changed. It's all still in the hands of the producers and the directors. So it's out of the, out of the control and the power of the actors. So all we have as actors is the experience for ourselves of the actual the beast itself, the job, and actually doing and being creative. And I just think um, when you look back at that, that style of working... I think most actors would say that that was far more enjoyable than the kind of the rushed kind of uh, nature of, uh, you know, money conscious, expenditure conscious way of creating film and television today. Well, and uh, expenditure is not something that Doctor Who is famous for, um, <laughs> but no expense spared on the casting. Do you remember how you got the part? Yes, um, yeah, I do. I mean, I, I went to meet uh, Sarah Hellings was the director, lovely Sarah, who I've worked with uh, subsequently a couple of times. Um, and literally just got the casting through my agent the normal way and went to meet her at BBC Television Centre and all I knew was it was Doctor Who. And I, I went in to meet her. She told me a little bit, basically. Um, I didn't have to read. I didn't do anything. She just said, would you be able to do a North East accent? So I just said yes. All actors say yes, whatever the question. Just say yes. Um, so I just said yes. I'm not from the North East, but I just said yes. And, um, and that was it. And it was literally a meeting that probably lasted three minutes. In, out. It was just a look. You know, she saw something in me, presumably with all her casting. She was looking for something in somebody. Um, she had an idea. I just fit the bill. And then it was done. It was very, very quick indeed. And then you just get a call um, a week later to say, yes, you're on. 
And then actually, uh, interestingly, what happened then was we, uh, we were filming um, up in, uh, in uh, Shropshire with this, and Sarah already had been commissioned again by the BBC. Again, in those days, directors were part of the BBC establishment and would go from show to show to show. And she'd already got the first scripts through for a brand new series that she was then going to start working on immediately after the Doctor Who slot had finished, uh, called Howard's Way. And uh, she said to me, in, in Shropshire, one day filming, after some particularly enjoyable scenes that we'd had a good time with, and uh, she just came up to me and said, Bill, I'm going to give you a script in your hotel room tonight for a new series I'm going to be working on. I've got an idea. I think there might be a part in it for you. Uh, do you want to have a read of it? And then uh, a few months later, six months later, I joined Howard's Way, the first series, and did the first series of Howard's Way with, with Sarah again. There's nothing like a job breeding another job, is there? Work breeds work. Yeah. Um, now, the northern element is, is of interest to me because I was a northern-based actor for many years. Um, I associate you with the North principally because of all the Godber stuff that I've yeah. seen you do. Um, and yet it's curious that this is, a, this is something where everyone does a northeast accent. And I'm curious that you were sort of seen as somebody to do that, even though you're not from the northeast. Yeah. Do you know no, what I mean? No, absolutely. But again, you see, although I am, um, people that know me and directors and um, uh, producers that I've worked with a lot would, I think, naturally think of me as a northern actor. But I've always had a London agent. So actually in those days, in the, my early days, because I'd only left drama school in 80, the late 80s so, to start work, so this was only four years after, after leaving drama school for me. But my agent was in London, and obviously I hadn't a, had a, a great body of work by that stage. Um, and uh, I think they just assumed that I was in London because my agent was in London. So they never asked where you lived or where you were from particularly. You just went in and, you know, and in those days um, I probably had uh, a very neutral accent having come straight from drama school, so um, they probably didn't even know particularly that, that I was Northern. Um, well, and then we get the great conundrum, because part of you goes, well, because nowadays the idea of casting a non-Geordie as a Geordie, unless mm. it's for a major part where a famous actor wants to show yeah, off, yeah, yeah. Uh, you'd go, well, we, we will only get Geordies. Yeah. And you go, oh, well, we, but then on the other side of things, I'm an actor, and mm. therefore part of my job should be being able to do different accents. So where, where do you fall on that conundrum? I don't think, I, actually, um, my perspective on this really is that um, it doesn't quite work like that, because I'm very aware of many, many shows set and filmed in the north of England which contained very, very few northern actors. And it's very frustrating for northern actors to, and certainly myself and my colleagues from the north, um, have been in this situation where we've looked at projects and said, how come there are no northerners in this show? And it's not because it's full of names, it's just because it's just full of actors. You know, and actually, in a way, you kind of go, well, an actor is an actor. So actually, the point is, if they can do the job and they can do make make a convincing portrayal of wherever the uh, location of a piece is, then then why shouldn't they be doing the job? I've no I've no qualms about that. The only time it really balks actors, I think, is when they don't do a good job. It's that well, it's that thing about being a northern-based actor. Is uh, I'm sure you've done it where you've had to audition for a northern theatre in London. Oh, all the time. <laughs> but again, I, my, you know, my agent's in Soho, so even now everybody sees my name 
with my agent. So they, all they see is a Soho address. So unless they do actually know me, they, you know, they wouldn't know necessarily. I suppose there's a bit of a clue in the in, in the surname Ilkley, <laughs> Ilkley from Ilkley. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anybody who knows anything about Yorkshire and where Ilkley is, or has ever heard Ilkley more by tat, um, would suddenly pick it out. But uh, there may be maybe a clue there. Um, and do you remember your your fellow? Um, uh, castmates. Oh, yeah. Peter Charles oh, was a big name at the time, wasn't it? How interesting that you pulled Peter Charles out of the hat, first of all. Peter and I became great, great buddies on that show. Um, I'd never met Peter before, and he kind of, uh, obviously, was older than me. Uh, um, and he took me under his wing. Uh, but he was a great, great buddy. I mean, very sadly, uh, dead now. He's been, well, that's a, a few of the, a few of that particular show. Um, but, uh, yeah, great guy. He was kind of um, very, very uh, recognisable at the time from Minder, yeah, of course. Uh, he attracted a lot of attention on the tube, uh, particularly. I remember every time we, w- we would have rehearsals at North Acton, as I said earlier, and then Peter would whisk me away on the tube straight into Gooch Street to a private drinking club that he was a member of, and we would then spend the rest of the afternoon and the evening... <laughs> Uh, meeting all of his friends in there, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time with Peter, and he was a, he was he was the uh, he was the great joker in the pack. He was the great convivial host of the company, um, and uh, socially he was just a superb guy. And uh, your doctor, of course, was Colin Baker. Colin, yeah, lovely, lovely, a gentleman. I think Colin would always be described as being a perfect gentleman, um, and I've seen Colin more recently. And, um, and he, to me, when I've seen him, he doesn't seem to be any different now to how he was then, 25, 26 years ago, whatever the, uh, the time span is. Um, a very, very charming, nice guy. And I think he was, I think Colin was a little disappointed with Doctor Who because I think he anticipated and hoped that it was going to go on for longer. Um, he, you know, he, I know he was very, very excited to have got the role um, and, and, you know, and was loving being the doctor and the, you know and everything that that brings uh, to an actor playing that part but um it seemed to be a little short-lived for colin yes sadly although it, not as short-lived as it, it it could have been had you had your way um dragging him across a dell <laughs> with um exploding tree mines yeah that's right and um that was the end of episode one where we actually ended up putting the uh, the tardis on the uh, on the trolley on the in the coal mine trolley the truck on the railway line uh, and then pushing it down the mine shaft, and that would, then the music came, and that was the end of part one on the on, on end of first episode. So that could have been the end, but it's Doctor, so he was not going to die, was he? Well, and uh, I mean, when you got the script, what do you did you because the, the the writers Pip and Jane Baker have gone on to be legendary in Doctor Who for having amongst the wordiest Doctor Who scripts, <laughs> um, uh, which I mean, you weren't you weren't such a victim of. But the Pickering no. Time Lords are pretty yeah, yeah, are pretty yeah. wordy. But yeah. in terms of the subject matter of the Industrial Revolution being mm. as a result of alien interference, mm. do you think it was a decent effort? Um, I must admit, I I can't I don't remember actually the script having a. a that much of an impact on me at the time. I think I was just kind of more swallowed up with the fact that I was going to be doing Doctor Who, and I, and, 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 and I think it wouldn't have actually mattered to me what the script was like because I was so excited about the fact that I was going to be in a Doctor Who story at the time. Um, looking back on it and reflecting it, I don't know, I think it's quite a good thing. Um, um, and I don't know if many of the others at that time actually took a specific period of history in the way that that particular story did. 
I'm not. Uh, nothing else jumps out in my mind uh, to do that. And in a, in a way, it's quite quite a unique story, I think, as Mark of the Rani, from that perspective. So, from a historical perspective, I think it's quite it's quite educational as well. I think for kids to actually look back at that as as a piece of you know, relating to a piece of history. Yeah, well, and it's got a real historical figure. It's got George Stevenson. Absolutely, yeah, Gorn Granger. Yeah, no slouch himself. No, a great actor. I mean, at my time, um, you know, just a few years before that, I was at drama school, um, and I was seeing masses of shows at the National Theatre because Harold Innocent was my great mentor um, when I was learning uh, to be an actor, and I was down at Rose Bruford, and Harold was in the National Theatre Company at the time, and Gorn Granger was in the company. So I'd seen a lot of Gorn's uh, work on stage at the National, and... um, a very, very respected actor, great, great performer. So, but you look at the cast. I mean, you know, the cast of that story was, was, was tremendous. I thought, you know, when you actually look back at it now. Yeah, well, Terence Alexander, hugely recognisable. Bergerac, yeah, yeah, of course, his Bergerac days. Um, Anthony Ainley, of course, is the master. Well, tell us about him because he's something of an enigma. Actually. Well, he was an enigma <laughs> doing the show. He was, um, he, he was perfectly cast. Was Anthony Ainley because. A lot of that enig- enigmatic sense of character that he had on screen was exactly how he was off screen. He, w- he was the antithesis of Peter Childs, if anything. The- absolutely the opposite to Peter. Um, you didn't get to know Anthony in the same way. He wasn't open. He was guarded and quiet and mysterious, you know, and those kind of qualities that he had as the master. Um, but again, he was a guy, and I, I remember having a conversation with him about it, who absolutely loved and had a passion for the show and the part that he was doing, the part he created in it. And, of course, uh, a part that was being created in front of your eyes was Kate O'Mara as the, the sexy female version of the master. If you like. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and if anybody um, hasn't seen Mark of the Rani, <laughs> touch of irony in that question, yes, probably the least glamorous role Kate O'Mara has ever, ever played and probably ever will play. Um, but she was a great sport, I think, to do that because, uh, you know, Kate in those days was a very glamorous lady. And to take on that role and to uh, wrap herself up in sacks and <laughs> cloth and wrap her head and uh, look like the old, <coughs> the old bag lady running the wash house, then um, I thought it was great credit to her, actually, to do that. And uh, we'll move on for Doctor Who, because there's more to you than Doctor Who, but um, you were telling me that you, you have the DVD and it's that old thing of um, kids... Uh, kids yeah. and Doctor Who, isn't it? Yeah, my kids, and, and, and particularly children because of the power of Doctor Who now, the recreation, the reincarnation, the new Doctor Who. Um, there's such an interest in the old stories, and the old DVDs have had a resurgence in sales, and you know, as a result of that, as I know from the checks that we get even now, every year a check arrives for royalties for DVD sales and uh, usage of Doctor Who, even from the 80s when I was in it. So, um, yeah, my kids um, really enjoyed the experience of actually going back to Doctor because I actually filmed that in, so if we're saying 85, my first child was born in 86, a year later. So at that time, I didn't have any children. So uh, they've had to come to this uh, later on when they've grown up, which has been great for them, actually. And they loved going back to, uh, to see it, not only because I was in it, but um, um, just going back to the old Doctor Who stories because they love Doctor Who now. The one thing, though, I always get is, Dad, why can you not be in the new Doctor Who? Can you not go back and be in it again? 
which of course would be lovely. Yes, they need to have a word with your agent. I think I do, yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, we, we ch- touched briefly... Well, no, tell us first, tell you mentioned Harold Innocent, who also, did, as mm. among many things, did... Um, he's in the Happiness Patrol, uh, mm. giving a gloriously camp performance as a man who is the creator of a licorice all sort monster, <laughs> only in Doctor Who. So tell us about Harold then. I yes. Yeah, Harold was my mentor. He was uh, the guy that kind of introduced me to acting, was my drama teacher at school, a lovely guy called David Wildman. And David and Harold were great buddies. I think they'd done something with National Service together, um, obviously when they were young. And um, so when I uh, went off to drama school to Rose Bruford, um, David introduced me to Harold, um, who obviously was living in London and, w- and was a very well established actor in his uh, at that time, doing masses of television and uh, and as I say, lots of work at the National Theatre at that time. And he took me under his wing um, t- as a favour to David really, and um, really looked after me, helped me, introduced me to a lot of actors, so I could meet actors and talk to actors and find out about the job. Um, taught me about letter writing, how to get an agent, how to approach an agent, and set me off in the business. You know, so a lot of my career and the early stages of my career certainly were all down to Harold and his help and his mentoring. And we, I also touched briefly on um, your work uh, with Hull Truck and John Godbert. Yeah. I, I think it's not unfair to say you're an actor, certainly in the profession, mm. who is associated mm. chiefly with, uh, with, with... And that's not a bad association no, no, with no, the no, playwright no. John Godbert and his wonderful plays that are usually a small bunch of actors yep. who take yeah. on other parts, yeah, so gifts for an actor. Absolutely. So how did that association... Well, that started in 1988, so we're only three years after filming Mark of the Rani, and uh, John had become aware of me as an actor in, in the theatre uh, in Yorkshire and, and I'd gone off to do uh, shortly after doing Howard's Way which was the result of Mark of the Rani I then went to do one of the BBC uh, Screen 2 films called Defrosting the Fridge with Joe Don Baker American star mm-hmm. who came over to about a group of English guys playing American football and uh, one of the lads on that uh, shoot was Chris Walker another actor who's around Still, I don't know if Chris ever did Doctor Who. He's, but not, he's never done a Doctor Who. Oh, I'm surprised at that. Rocks, yeah, think. he's done yeah. masses of work. So Chris then was obviously was one of the John Gobber uh, brigade from because John took over in 1984 at Holtrup. And so Chris introduced me to John. And they were then filming uh, 8687, uh, the television version of Bouncers, which was the Ritz yeah. and the Continental in Birmingham. And I'd done a, I was then doing a Shakespeare play at Birmingham Rep and was introduced by Chris and Gareth Tudor-Price uh, to John in a nightclub in Birmingham. And then, uh, 1988, I got a call from John saying, I'm writing a new play. Uh, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to uh, invite you over to have a chat about it, because I think there's a great part for you. And it was a play called Salt of the Earth, which we opened in 1988. Obviously, I accepted the role without a script, so I went on just the fact that it was John Gobber and Holtrup. And um, we opened at Edinburgh, won Perrier Pick of the Fringe, uh, Fringe first, we went to the Donmar, um, did a national tour, uh, were invited to the RSC at Stratford with the show, and then to New York. So the first, that was my first job with John Gobber, so that was like an uh, 18-month span with a huge success with that play. So my association with John is, is, has been continuous from 1988 to today. Um, John separated from Hull Truck two years ago, and uh, has now formed his own company, the John Gobber Company, 
So he's now based uh, and producing out of Wakefield Theatre Royal. Uh, now on to his third production, but um, I am a, I've been appointed associate artist of the new John Gobber Company as well. So I'm very, very proud of that and uh, the association. So I was in the first two plays um, of the new company um, out of Wakefield and touring uh, two national tours with those. Um, and I've now had six plays specifically written for me by John which I think is a great achievement. That's, that's, not, that's not a bad position to be in. And has he ever uh, explained to you what it is about you that, he, that fits his work so well? Um, he has, we've never actually had that conversation. Um, my guess, if you were to ask him that question, would probably be that I'm the kind of actor who will stand my ground. And I've seen a lot of actors come into the company over the years at Hull Truck with John who have been daunted by John. Just the, the name of John sure. Gobber, the name of the company, and been a little bit frightened uh, in that sense. And so, and that's made, made them be a little bit restrictive in what they were able to produce. And I've never been like that with John. I've always, from day one, stood my ground with John and fought my corner as an actor, as a performer, and always brought a lot to the rehearsal room. Because the great thing about working with John Gopper is that when you're working, and particularly on new plays, obviously for actors over the last 25 years working with John, most of the work we've done has been new at the time. We've been very creating new pieces all the time. Um, you are allowed as an actor to bring a lot to the room. And so a lot of what goes in to the new play comes from the actors within the company as well, which is the total opposite to how Alan uh, Aitborn works at Scarborough, where when he, Alan writes a new play once a year, um, everything is contained within the play in the script and nothing is changed by an actor in the rehearsal process. So it's the total opposite way of working. And I've always been an actor that has been very uh, inventive, uh, very fluid, very natural with his work. I'm a Yorkshireman, you know, so I'm a West Yorkshireman, as John is. So I've, I've found the link with the characters and the people, the style, the time, the knowledge of the, the life that embodies John Gobber and the characters that he writes about, uh, and was able to slot into that very easily and readily, I think. And that, that's probably um, along the lines of what John would say if you were to ask him that question. And yet... Um What's brilliant is that you've, you've refused. To, well, it hasn't happened that you've been pigeonholed because you've done that great work. Yeah. But you've had you've had a pretty hefty slice of screen time as well. Oh yeah, no. I mean, we're up to um, eighty odd different TV shows and a dozen movies. So uh, yeah, I've been able to get away and work for other people, which has been great. Um, which I'm doing now. You know, it's been lovely. You know, last year I did a couple of plays for John, but the time. I could, the thing is, John and I are now such good pals, and we live five minutes away from each other we meet socially so we meet for coffee and discuss the projects that are coming up and John will use me as a sounding board for ideas for projects and ask me what I think about projects and plays or ideas for things he's going to write and even actors that he's thinking about working with but it doesn't mean that I necessarily am going to be involved in everything and I don't want to be uh, and, and he understands that and I understand that and that's how that kind of relationship now works and which is why I think you know, he wanted to have somebody like myself, I'm guessing, as a, an associate artist of the company, somebody that he could pull in uh, artistically to, to aid the development of the new company. 
but you'll nip out and do other tastes of sci-fi. You, you did the, the Day of the Triffids. Day of the Triffids, wonderful. A couple of years ago, yeah, Do Gray Scott, Jolie Richardson, Vanessa Redgrave, uh, Eddie Izzard. L- great fun working on that. Again, a lovely, lovely show to do. Um, first time that I'd worked with that amount of CGI, which was a new experience for me as an as a as an actor on film, uh, television, digital, um, uh, which was an interesting experience. So you you shoot a whole story about the Triffids and you never see a Triffid. Yeah, it's doing rubber trees out of work, though, sadly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you'd seen some of the locations that we're shooting and how things were done, you know, you've got a Triffid is actually just a piece of string pulling an actor around the neck to give them a sense of being tugged but and you're kind of standing back from this thinking how ridiculous is this you know but until they actually get on the computers and put the cgi in and create those uh, tentacles from the from the trees you know that's when it comes to life you know so it's it's, it's, a, it's a new skill for actors is all of this nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really is well and um Richard Curtis um, employed yeah. on the boat that rocked. Yeah, I did. I had great pleasure of working with Richard, and again, an amazing cast on that. Philip Seymour Hoffman, Bill Nye, uh, Jack Davenport, uh, Gemma Arterton. Yeah. Um, great company, lovely, lovely company, and great fun. And again, a great privilege to be to go along to a meeting, to be, even to be invited to meet Richard Curtis and have an interview. And then Richard's interview was slightly different to the Sarah Hellings interview. I actually did have to actually work script with him on camera um, so it was a bit of a grueling uh, test uh, uh, auditioning for Richard but obviously it worked because he saw something and um, and I was given the gig and uh, went down to Portland to actually film uh, uh, film my pieces for uh, the boat that rocked down there Is that where the work is done there then for film is that he worked you to make sure you were ready so that if he mm. was to give you the part there's no messing about because time is money with film Absolutely and I think he wants to I think he was kind of just wanting to know as an actor that you could um, produce a variety for him because Richard works in the way as a director where he will shoot and shoot and shoot on one scene. So he gives himself so many options. So he's looking for actors that can give a variety for him, played just slightly differently in different ways. And, and it's great. He will stand literally face next to the lens and he will direct on one line. And you'll say the line and he'll direct, say the line, direct, say the line, direct, say the line. And it's just getting you working as an actor and um, giving you stimulus to just to bring something slightly different to each take for you. And then he has, he's got the pick. He can choose which one he wants to. Exactly what he wants. Well, so have you any unfulfilled ambitions? Anything you'd like to do as we round up? Because I've exceeded my time limit. No, no. Um, no, I think, I think most actors, obviously, just want to keep on working. I'm, my reason for becoming an actor was not because I wanted to be a great big star. and I didn't want recognition in the street and all that. And I've seen that with people. And it's not very nice. And I don't like that side of it. Um, for me... I just want to be remembered as being a versatile actor who was able to bring something different to many, many roles and many forms of work, from the theatre to film to television to radio, which I do a lot. I'm doing a lot of voiceover work at the moment and radio ads and things like that, which I'm really enjoying playing with my voice, you know, and I'm finding a new skill to kind of attack now, which is great fun. Um, So just to keep on working and keep having a great variety of work is the key for me. Well, your versatility can definitely be seen in the Godber stuff, and I would hope, if nothing else, this um, podcast 
any listeners, even listeners from across the pond who might mm. not know the work of John Godber, mm. worth checking out. Um, if, if Doctor Who's facilitated that, that's a good thing. It also, I hope, facilitates um, a charitable donation from the listeners. So I'm going to ask you, Bill, to um, to nominate a charity. Yeah, my choice of charity would be um, Papworth Hospital at Cambridge. Uh, in Cambridgeshire, the um, Heart and Lung Specialist Hospital. Uh, my dad's been uh, very, very ill for uh, 18 years, and we were told 18 years ago, uh, all the family, that my dad wouldn't make it till the following morning. And then they whisked him away to Papworth, and he's still with us now. And it's all down to Papworth Hospital and the genius of those uh, uh, those practitioners down there in the Heart and Lung specialist area of medicine at Papworth Hospital so anything for Papworth would be fantastic great and uh, on a lighter note the uh, the message I primed you for this what's your message to those listening Doctor Who fans on this 50th anniversary year of Doctor Who well firstly happy anniversary secondly keep watching keep buying all the DVDs and uh, write a little message to the producers to ask for William Ilkley to be in the new Doctor Who for Tim Bass to return Absolutely. I'll play his brother, Shandy. (laughs) Uh, Bill Ilkley, thank you very much. My pleasure. My thanks to Bill, whose charity can be found at www.papworth hospital charity. All one word. Papworth hospital charity.org. If you can donate, that would be lovely. And another of the Bowerman Massive uh, is on my list next. Uh, Next on my list, indeed. Um, I was was recovering from saying Bowerman Massive. The the Cara Posse. The Bernice Summerfield Gang. Anyway, I'm Skyping him uh, in the living room with the lead piping. Uh, assuming that's that's what my laptop is made of. Uh, have I left you with a mystery? Well, find out next time who done it. Well, if not, who certainly has something to do with it. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. Eldrad must die. Here lies Eldrad. Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. This is Icebreaker Alexander. Alexander, Alexander. I wanted a boat out to the island. (laughs) You'll be lucky. I am in a thousand worlds. Boats go down round here. I cracked in frozen waters. Gibbs, open the door! And nothing gets recovered. He's coming out. Keep back! Something glittered. There. It's a bird. A big one. The reactor housing. It's not moving. Look at its wings. Poor thing. 
Its feathers are full of crystals. It's covered in ice. It's not ice, sir. It's more like quartz. I am here. Look to their faces. Don't look at them. Let's just walk away. Gibbs, is that you? Crystals over their faces like masks. Eldrad masks. The contamination has spread to humans. Don't look at their eyes. Keep going. His eyes, sir. Eyes. They're glowing. Am Eldrad. Eldrad must die. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.